Hi, my name is Chuck Polinick, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. I've learned so much from David Mitchell, who I, I adore. I love the novels of David Mitchell, but it's kind of hard to compete with the the you know um, the sort of overpowering um, uh, light that my dad has sort of cast on on the landscape of my own imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first even the first full length adult novel I ever read was The Talisman when I was about thirteen years old. Where do you and, go? Uh, here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. How cliche do you think it would be if we just like decided to drop this on like Halloween and played like eerie music in behind it as it came in? Can we do that? We I don't do even it? know. I don't, You're the one who does all that editing. Well, type I mean, stuff. I can. I can do it for sure. But I don't know. Like we have Joe Hill, a member of the King family, the legendary King family. Yeah. And should we drop horror music in? Should we do this on Halloween? I don't know. Um, we probably should have planned this out before we just dropped the episode and started recording. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, let's do that. So, welcome in to our well, Halloween episode. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Scary stuff. Uh, yeah. No, and you know it's 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 well timed too because not only you know are his novels like super creepy, but right. um, you know he's got the Tales from the Dark Side uh, book, which is has just come out from IDW. So it's like I, I don't know if you ever watched that show. Did you guys get that in Canada? I don't know. I don't, you guys I don't think so. No, we we have stuff like Goose something called Goosebumps. I don't know if you have that down there. Probably something called Goosebumps. <laughs> Come on. I didn't know. If really? That, I didn't know if it was Canadian or not. I don't know. I don't know those things. <laughs> That's so cute. Uh, yeah, I know what Goosebumps is. I actually am too old for that. Goosebumps was was after right. my time and uh, my kids okay. have, haven't gotten into the, that yet. Right. Um, Tales from the Dark Side was sort of a uh, it was a an 80s version of it was like our twilight zone right you know, okay. our, our outer limits if you know those shows yeah, so it was like yeah. it was this late night creepy um uh what's the word not an ensemble show but like every every episode was was its own standalone uh story um it's like i don't know if you mean like tales from the crypt like right, all those yeah. shows kind of they all kind of spun out of this Twilight Zone idea, the mold that the Twilight Zone set. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tales from the Dark Side, I remember that show just, it, it terrified me when I was a kid. <laughs> I, I loved it, but it was just, I can still see it now. Like the opening credits, it showed like this, it was either it was just this creepy scene of like of like a house or a field or something and then like it would go black and white and then the oh oh it was just the show the show terrified me and like some of the episodes weren't really scary they right. were just kind of like creepy or, yeah. or or black you know black humor or just eerie mm-hmm. but 
just I remember just with the opening credits and then the story and it being late at night and I wasn't really allowed to watch that show <laughs> terrified me. And so what happened is they were going to make a uh, they were going to do like a remake of it. Right. They were going to reboot Tales from the Dark Side. And uh, Joe Hill was brought in to write some of the scripts for it. Okay. And so he wrote several scripts for this show that was supposed to be and it just, you know, Hollywood television, one thing after another, it didn't actually happen. But what they did is uh, IDW, the comic book publisher, the same company that um, 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 put out Lock and Key, um, what they did is they took the story, the scripts that he wrote, and he worked together with Gabriel Rodriguez, who he also worked together with for Lock and Key, and they they turned those scripts into a comic, into graphic novels. Nice. Um, and so they've just released the the um, like the trade collected version, collected edition of those stories. Um, so yeah, it, this is like this is particularly timely. Oh, <laughs> we're gonna be so cheesy. <laughs> you know, I've never been a big a big like horror movie type. I get too scared. It's not that I don't enjoy that they're that they're right. they're writing because they they're fantastic, especially when you get a great writer like Joe Hill. But uh, I just get like in it. I get reading it and I I just can't do it. I'm like, but Stranger Things we, wasn't too bad for me. But that's not well. That Stranger was, Things was see that's the thing. I enjoy horror when it's more. Of more like thriller, right? You know, and it's something like Stranger Things, or it's something like, um, what would be a good example? I mean, the original Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't really that. I mean, there was some gore in that, obviously, but like it was more thriller. Like you just didn't know what was coming right. next, you know, right. or 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 something that was like The Sixth Sense, you know, something that's creepy, you know, yes. not necessarily yes. gory, but horror in the sense that it's this this just really creepy unsettling story and it has this thrill factor right i'm not a fan of the like the jump scare ones (laughs) so the jump scares are okay i'm not a fan of the like overly gory like the saw movies i've never been interested in watching those you know like what what do they call them torture porn you know like when it's just torture or disgusting just you know tearing limbs apart for no reason it's like horror for horror's sake basically yeah (laughs) there's no story there's no thrill in it it's just how much blood and disgustingness can we throw into this movie you know that i don't like but um you know, a story that keeps you on the edge of your seat or that keeps you. I remember, again, and this is not pertinent to this, to, to our guest, but um, when I was a kid, you know, talking about the the, the, the Tales from the Dark Side, mm-hmm. I watched uh, uh, The Exorcist. Okay. Original Exorcist movie when I was yeah. maybe, I don't know, 12. Oh, man. I was, I was home alone. My parents were out. And I it was I, I don't remember if it was on TV or if I had the VHS. But I remember I'm going to watch it. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my room underneath a blanket watching this The Exorcist home alone and just scaring the all living <laughs> crap out of myself. And that's a perfect example. Right. I mean, again, The Exorcist has some gore and has some, you know, grossness right. in the movie. But it's more of like a edge of your seat, what's going to happen kind of thrill. Right. You probably slept well that night. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I, and I remember my mom or my dad came home later that night and the movie hadn't finished yet. And it was like one of like the really tense moments at the end. And I hear the door open and close and I just jumped 10 feet in the air. I was just, I was just so scared. So this week we talked to Joe Hill and it's a fantastic interview. And 
Um, you're going to want to stick around to find out about what they do for holidays, the King family, when they get together. <laughs> you're going to want to hear it. It's a really cool family tradition. <laughs> and that that's not the biggest takeaway, but I like that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, your, that's your best takeaway, That's my right? takeaway. Yeah, so we're going to play that for you right now. Justin, Jamie, thanks for having me on. I'm I'm an old old time geek dad fan. That's great uh, to hear. Yeah, I don't know how long has the site been around. Oh my goodness, I should probably know this. Um, it's been at least twelve 10, years. It's been is at it, least is ten. It possible it's been twelve years. It could be. You know, we were it, it, we started out as a part of Wired, and uh, a few years ago now uh, we split. And uh, we're our own entity now. We're not we're not affiliated with Wired anymore. But uh, that's sort of how we began all those years ago. And yeah, it's it's been at least ten. It could be twelve. See, I remember early days when I was a young, exhausted father <laughs> who was kind of desperate not to blow it, you know, and wanted to be. I really wanted to be fun and creative and do the right things and. Uh, hopefully point the kids towards useful ideas about how to spend their time. And, and, you know, and geek dad was always great about that. There was always something on geek dad that I could explore or use um, and occasionally stuff to envy. Um, I remember, (laughs) I remember wishing there were a couple pieces about camps in Silicon Valley where kids go and they like, you know, they like build, you know, uh, uh, milk cart racers, you know, um, yeah. and, and, you know, and it seemed like they were like, almost like these mini engineering camps. Yeah. And I, I live in New Hampshire and there's nothing like that around here. And I remember thinking, <laughs> ah, I wish there was that. I wish I had that when I was a kid. Forget my kid. I wish right. I got to go there. There's so much cool stuff now that kids can take, get, you know, become part of that just didn't exist when we were kids. And it's, I am envious of sometimes of the things that my kids get to do. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it's funny. Have, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, but they also have a whole set of traps they can fall into that we never had to worry about. <laughs> Fair point. Um, you know, there's the screens. There's the screens, which are sort of like, you know, a double-edged sword. There's so much wonderful stuff to explore on your phone. There's so much wonderful stuff to explore on your phone. There's almost no reason to ever look up from it, which yeah. is not necessarily right. such a great thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's it's funny you mentioned that, you know, coming to Geek Dead for all of the great ideas and projects that you can do with your kids. I actually just... Um, was talking to to you know the editors uh, yesterday and today about that very thing and that how we we've we haven't been doing a whole lot of that recently and that's that's how I first found the site before I even started writing for the site I found it because of these these DIY projects and ideas yeah and th- weekend things that you can do with your kids and there were just some really really great ideas and and um, we still do it to a certain extent but it's it's kind of fallen into the shadows a little bit and I'd really love to bring that back yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think like, uh, you know, there was there was an electronics kit that worked like Legos, and I'm 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 showing my you know I'm showing my age. Yeah. That I can't remember like my memory is shot these days. There was like it was just conceptual. Yeah. At the when I first read about it on Think Geek, it was just I mean on Geek on Geek Dad, yeah. it was just conceptual, 
and then there was like a Kickstarter, and and suddenly it's everywhere. It's and uh, and, and I'm blowing it. I can't remember what the name of it is. Yeah. What's the What's the thing? It's like it teaches you about circuitry and. Well, Lego oh, does yeah. make a robotics kit. It's um, yeah, but it wasn't Lego. I know, I know what you mean, and it I can't think of Lego. the name of it. Oh God, we're terrible. <laughs> little, bits? The, uh, little little bits is out there. Little bits is kind little of like bits. it was yes, little bits. Yeah. Yeah. Little bits is the coolest. Little bits were so much fun. I also remember that there was a there was a tutorial on Geek Dad about making electronic fireflies with uh, the batteries that go in like watches. Yeah. And for about one week, my whole house was decorated with these things. <laughs> if you turned off the lights, uh, you know, suddenly the room was just like constellations of these little LED fireflies. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that's amazing. I love that we're just sitting here geeking out about our own site. <laughs> yeah. Summary, summary. Geek Dad has always been really cool. <laughs> and we continue to be. And now we've got you on on our podcast and and it's we're even cooler, I think, because of that. <laughs> um, diving in, you know, moving away from just how awesome we are. Let's talk about how awesome right. you are. <laughs> my favorite subject. Excellent. <laughs> really my really my favorite subject. <laughs> um I'm I'm curious, I mean, let's start at the beginning. You know, what first put you on the road to writing and storytelling? Was it just a natural result of the family that you grew up with or was there an aha moment that you said this is what I'm going to do? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk about how I wound up being a writer without talking about my own dad, right. you know? Um the um both my parents write, you know, my dad is Steve King and, and my mom is Tabitha King and they've both been tremendously successful writers. Um, you know, I would come home from school when I was 12 years old and my mom would be in her office writing on a tomato colored selectric IBM selectric typewriter. Nice. Um, that jittered like a cocaine fiend. <laughs> um, and, and my dad, my dad would be up in his office writing on a Wang word processor with a, uh, it had this black tube screen with green glowing letters on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, there had been some articles about, you know, how futuristic my dad's uh, work approach was, because while other writers were working longhand and on type, typewriters, he was working on a computer. Right. And um, groundbreaking. And I would, yeah. And I would, and by the way, those were great devices. I'll circle. But I'm going to circle back to Wang, uh, the Wang word processor, in a okay. second. But I, you know, I would see both my parents writing, and by the time I was 12, I just sort of assimilated the idea that um, you were supposed to sit in a room by yourself for an hour every day and make stuff up, and sooner or later, someone would pay you a lot of money for that. <laughs> um, and that and that actually turned out to be true. Um, so I started. So I started writing every day when I was about 12 years old. My first, my first professional fiction submission was a script that I sent to Marvel Comics for Spider-Man. Mm. They had a book called The Marvel Triad, and it was a giant oversized book with half a Spider-Man story in it. And then if you were a colorist, there were some uncolored pages for you to color. And if you were an artist, there was some script and some blank pages for you to draw to use to, mm -hmm. to illustrate. Mm -hmm. And then if you were a writer, they left the story unfinished and, um, and you were invited to write your own ending to the story. So that's what I did. And I got back a form rejection. Uh, there was a little scribbled note from the editor in chief, Jim Shooter. 
um, at the bottom of my form rejection, and I actually couldn't read what it said. I assumed it said, <laughs> you're awesome, kid. You know, keep trying us. Um, and so and so I did, uh, you know, I kept going and actually eventually did wind up selling to Spider-Man. It only took me another 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you remember what that Spider-Man story was about? Like how you finished it? I think that I finished it with a lot of punching. Of course. <laughs> that, you know, that that was sort of my 12-year-old strategy. You know, my clever ending was Spider-Man punches the bad guys. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, there was that. Eventually, I did, you know, I did have this time where I had an opportunity to write an 11-page Spider-Man story. Um, and it came out okay. It's not, it's not my best published piece of writing. It was my first comic book. My first published comic book was an 11-page Spider-Man story. Mm-hmm. But I have to admit, when I was a kid, my dad used to tell us Spider-Man stories, and my published Spider-Man story is nowhere near as good as the ones he used to tell us. <laughs> oh, you know, man, I'd love to hear some of those. <laughs> whole, yeah, well, my dad had this whole thing, okay? So he knew he couldn't kill Spider-Man. We wanted Spider-Man stories. Right. So, he, so he would make these up, and he knew he couldn't kill the guy. But, but there's something when you're a kid you fear even worse than death, and that's public humiliation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, in one of his Spider-Man stories, Spider-Man, Peter Parker, is in Disney World with Mary Jane, <laughs> and, and he eats some bad food, and then the lizard comes up from the sewers, and Spidey has to fight off the lizard. And and they're battling, and Spidey's stomach is cramping, and the lizard buries a fist in his gut, and oh, no. Spidey's, Spidey's bowels let go, <laughs> and he just absolutely fills, he just completely fills the Spidey, Spidey suit with snakes. <laughs> and, and as kids, we howled in anguish. This was the most horrible thing you could possibly imagine happening to your hero. Yeah. We howled. <laughs> But we loved it. You know, it was so wonderful. And I have pledged to myself, if I ever get another chance to write for Spider-Man, Spider-Man is going to be be foul the super suit. That's happening. (laughs) If they ever ever open the door to me again, I will redeem myself in my own eyes um, uh, by providing Spider-Man with a bad corn dog and a chance to humiliate himself on the largest possible public stage. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. That's absolutely yeah. amazing. <laughs> did you, I mean, you say, that, you know, you, you grew up just thinking that this is what you did. You sat down for an hour, you wrote, and eventually yeah. you could make money doing it. But, I mean, all kids, t- teenagers, they rebel. They rebel against what their parents do or what they want them to do. I mean, did you go through that where it's like, I'm going to do anything except be a writer? <laughs> yeah, I did go through that in a weird way. Um, the way that I went through it was I decided one day that I wasn't going to be Stephen King's son. Yeah. Um, you know, I was about 18, 19, and I decided I wanted to write for a living. And I also came to feel that it was important not to be Joseph King, that it was important not to write under my own name and, and um, not be identified as Stephen King's kid. And I had practical concerns about that. Um, I felt that if I wrote as Joseph King, there was a chance that I might write some mediocre works of fiction mm-hmm. because I was, I was still learning. 
and that an unscrupulous publisher would publish me anyway because they saw a chance to make a quick buck in the last name. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified of that. I, I, I felt like, you know, what if my first novel comes out? It's Joseph King, son of Stephen King. People read it and say, maybe accurately, he only got published because he has a famous dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in dread. I was in mortal horror of that happening. And so I dropped my last name, and I started writing as Joe Hill. And over the course of the decade, I wound up writing four novels that I was never able to publish and a lot of short stories that I was never able to get published. But I had the opportunity to make my mistakes in private where they belong and to learn the craft, uh, you know, one page at a time, one submission at a time. And gradually I did learn the things that I feel like you need to know if you want to be a successful commercial writer. Um, to just name name one thing that I sort of took me a while to absorb, but I got it eventually. Um, you know, I would have a great idea for a story, but sometimes it would take me 15 pages to get to it or 10 pages to get to it. I don't think you can wait that long. I don't think you can afford to not have your best idea right up front in the first chapter, in the first page, in the first paragraph, maybe even in the first sentence. Um, But that's the kind of thing. There's a, there's, there's, there's a lot to absorb. It's, it is, uh, it is a job that involves keeping a lot of plates in the air at once. And the only way you can sort of, learn how to do that is to, is to relentlessly keep at it. Um, I think Malcolm Gladwell has talked about the 10,000 hour rule yeah, yeah. and that there's also been some, some feeling that Malcolm Gladwell is full of it, <laughs> that the 10,000 hour rule somehow is sort of a made up number plucked out of thin air. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of like getting 10,000 steps a day. Apparently right. the 10,000 steps a day idea that this is healthy for you um, was also a number largely plucked out of thin air. Mm-hmm. But don't you think getting 10,000 steps a day is probably healthier for you than getting only 200 steps a day? Exactly. And then sitting down with a bag of Cheetos and a you know two liter bottle of Coke. Um, you know, and that's how I feel about the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah, it's not going to hurt you. Have you. A lot of ta- yeah, if you have a lot of talent, maybe it's only 7,000 hours. Um, if if your talent is of fairly average size, you probably need that 10,000 hours or maybe even 12,000. So I think 10,000 hours is a pretty good, yeah. is a pretty good mark to shoot for. Yeah. I mean, how, how much thought though, you mentioned, you know, how, how many pages or how many words it takes to get to the story or how it gets to get to the good part. How much thought do you give to, you know, all those words and pages that just don't get published? You know I mean? How, about how much of what you write, eventually just gets scrapped or reworked beyond recognition. So it's almost like you didn't write it to begin with. Well, I'm a lot more efficient than I used to be. At this point, I would say I probably keep as much as 30% of what I write that mm-hmm. I only have to throw out about 70% of it. Wow. And it used to be, it used to be that I would have to throw out 80 or 90% of it. So I've definitely gotten better. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, um, there's a, it's a mistake to have a kind of bottom line thinking. Yeah. Where, you know, if you write seven pages today and you wind up cutting them next week, that was somehow wasted time. It wasn't wasted time. Uh, that's, that's a misunderstanding of the process. When I'm working on a, on a book, 
even in the early stages, a lot of times I'm just looking to get my characters talking. I want to hear the sound of their voice. If, they, if I can get them talking, I will learn who they are and how they think about the world and what they do when they're backed into a corner, how they fight their way out, their unique approach to solving problems. And, and my way of discovering characters is to keep putting them in situation after situation and, and seeing how they think about it, how they struggle their way out, how they communicate with each other. A lot of that material may not make it to a finished story, but in the process of writing it, I will learn who those people are. Sure. And, and I think that creates a density of character. So when readers encounter those characters on the page, they feel fully formed. They don't just feel like uh, – they don't feel one-dimensional. They don't just feel like uh, types to move the plot along from point A to point B to point C. Mm-hmm. And you know, the other thing is, is um, when you have a really fully developed character that's fun to write, you can just plant them in any situation and sit back and enjoy. You will always know um, what will happen next. Because all you have to do is let them do whatever they would naturally do to just be the people they are. Um, to give a concrete example, I wrote a comic book called Lock and Key mm-hmm. for about seven years. Lock and Key is the story of an enchanted New England mansion full of impossible keys. Every key unlocks a different door and activates a different supernatural power. And this family turns up there after a tragedy terrible family tragedy, and they try to rebuild their lives. And there are three kids, um, 17-year-old Tyler, 15-year-old Kinsey, and 9-year-old Bodie. And when I started writing that story, the first issues, sometimes I'd need to do 10 or even 12 drafts to get the issue right. And it was because I didn't really know who those people were. When I wrote the first issue, the only characters I really understood or Tyler and Bodie, and I learned about the other characters as I went along. So I would do a lot of drafts in the early going. By the time I wrote the last 10 issues of Lock and Key, I could usually get it done in two drafts. It was easy because I knew who those people were, and no matter what situation I put them in, I always knew how they'd respond. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the big mental labor was no longer required. Um, the early part was like work. Um, the later part was like uh, more like watching a TV show I enjoyed. You know, right. it, felt, it felt very little like I was entertaining others, and more like I was just being entertained myself. Right. I mean, you 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 mentioned lock and key, so let's let's talk about that. Um, being a novelist can be very solitary. I would, I would imagine, yes. you know, a lot of the actual process of writing is you and however you write with pen or with word processor or with computer or typewriter, however you write. And it's just getting the words in the page, getting the ideas out of your head. But when you work on a graphic novel, there's a lot more collaboration that goes on, especially with yeah. the artist. I mean, was that a challenge for you to adapt to that, that process? Well, I mentioned that the very first story I ever sent out was a Spider-Man story. Right. And, you know, I've always really been a comic book guy first, more than more than I'm a novelist or really? a writer of short stories. Or yeah, I think so. Um, I so I so I was writing as Joe Hill. I had all these years when I was sort of um, 
no one had seen through the pen name. Eventually, the pen name came apart, but not until after I had sold my first book of stories and, and mm-hmm. um, placed my novel as a publisher and learned some things I needed to learn and get some self-confidence. But I did have a lot of years of rejection, and I got to a point um, – I got to a point where I thought maybe I don't have the talent to be a novelist. I took my swing and maybe it's just not going to happen for me. Mm-hmm. But a talent scout at Marvel had read one of my short stories and really liked it. And that's how I got the Spider-Man gig. Hmm. And for me, it was a huge personal breakthrough. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, I had a dream that I was going to be a novelist. It didn't pan out. But maybe I'll wind up writing, writing Ghost Rider. Right. Um, or an X-Man spinoff. And that would still be pretty fun. That would still be a pretty good career. Yeah. Um, so so I broke into comics. Before I had a novel, I was a comic book guy. And and before Heart Shape Box was out, I was working on Lock and Key with IDW. And for me, comics have – I've always had more fun writing comics than writing anything else. Um, it's the closest I feel like you can get as a writer – to being in a rock band, you know, it's kind of like I'm the drummer. I keep the beat. Gabriel Rodriguez, who drew all 37 issues of Lock and Key, he's like the guitarist. Yeah, you know, he creates the melody, he creates the sound, and then you know the rest of the team have their roles as well. Um, you know, the the colorist Jay Photos, he's like the keyboardist. You know, and in the same way a keyboardist can create emotional coloration for a song, that's what Jay Photos did with the page. Yeah. Um, we had a vocalist. Our Mick Jagger is Robbie Robbins, who does all the word balloons. He is he literally puts the words on the page of the words in the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and Chris Ryle, you know, Chris Ryle, our our editor, was kind of like George R. R. Martin in the studio. <laughs> we, you know, somehow he always figured out a way to take our ridiculous eleven minute jams. And make them into tight three minute songs. Make it work. Yeah. Yeah, make it work. You know, find yeah. a find a tune there that everyone could hum along to. So, so, so I had a blast. I had a blast writing comics. I had so much fun. I hardly ever write comics anymore. Yeah. Um and and the reason why is because writing a novel or a short story is harder and it's more you're more isolated, it's lonelier. Um but the satisfactions are very high, and I don't want to get so comfortable writing comics that I forget how to do that other work. Right. Did you ever have any fears with the lock and key that it would typecast you? Um, as a comic book writer or as a horror guy? As a comic book writer. Uh, I yeah. mean, I think, I think it's fair to say a lot of people maybe discovered you through that series, you know, and, and sort of fell in love with your writing and then branched out to all your other writing through that. But... Um, you know, did you, did you feel like that? Did it pigeonhole you? Pigeonhole you, or, or yeah, like Justin said, did you fear that it was going to typecast you because that was your first runaway success in graph in, in comics? Well, I do think I do think that um, um, you know, I've had three really great breaks professionally, mm-hmm. and that Lock and Key is would be like right at the top of the list. You know, one of the working on Lock and Key is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Um, as a comic book writer, am I typecast? Uh, I think, I think if I was going to, um, I think if I was going to write for Marvel comics, they would love if I wanted to write about Morbius, the living vampire, Mm -hmm. and would probably be a little less psyched 
if I wanted to write Howard the Duck. <laughs> um, but I can live with that. Um, I, I don't, you know, you know, I don't really mind. I mean, I, I've written as a novelist. I wrote one story about a ghost, one story about a man turning into a devil, um, one story about a guy who has a car that runs on human souls instead of gasoline. <laughs> One story about a runaway plague that kills people by way of spontaneous combustion. Yeah. I have a, I like what I like. I do have, you know, um, a certain affection for, you know, the horror movies of Wes Craven and John Carpenter and, and David Cronenberg. Um, you know, I'm a big Stephen King fan. Yeah. <laughs> I like reading, I, you know, I like reading Peter Straub. Um, you know, I love, I love books of blood by Clive Barker. I love Neil Gaiman, um, you know, and, and all his work. And, and so, I mean, I, I like what I like. Um, I, I don't know if, so I don't know if it's when we talk about the kind of stuff that maybe I'd be invited to write or, I don't know if that's really typecasting so much as mm -hmm. identifying, okay, yeah. this is, this is what this guy, this is where his enthusiasms are. Right. Um, that said, that said, if I had a chance to write a comic for Marvel, um, you know, I probably want to do Spidey, sure. uh, because, right. because I need redemption, you know, going back to, <laughs> I need redemption. everyone needs a shot of redemption and I need mine. <laughs> if I wrote for DC, I'd probably want to write about Superman. Um, cause I don't think Zack Snyder made him gritty enough. I think it's got. I think we've got to get dark. We've got oh to no! Get dark. Oh gosh! No! No! no. <laughs> make them fun again. You got to make them fun again. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think that you know, I don't want to be too critical of what I haven't seen, because the truth is, I've resisted watching Man of Steel or Batman mm -hmm. v Superman. Okay. Um, my sense is it's not my jam. Yeah. You know, I really my my vision of Superman is probably best embodied by a graphic novel mm -hmm. um, by Grant Morrison called All-Star Superman. Sure. And the colors, the colors in All-Star Superman are like bubblegum bright. Mm -hmm. You know, Frank Quitely's art in it is um, so good humored and crazy. And, you know, it's, it's got Superman doing the things you want Superman to do, fighting giant robots and bizarro <laughs> Superman and yeah. having these kind of, um, space age adventures that are visions of the future as they imagined it in 1940. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of more my thing. I don't think I really want to watch a Superman who breaks necks and is wandering around <laughs> in gray underwear. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know why anybody would quite honestly. <laughs> um, I, I want, I want to talk about you, 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 you mentioned your fandoms and what you enjoy. And I want to come back to that in a second, but I need to ask you, um, Lock and key before we before we move on from that. You've got a one shot coming up in December, yeah. I think, and you're also world. and you're writing the pilot to a hoped for a TV show. So, what can you tell yeah. us about both of those? Well, I I don't think I'll get in trouble to say that Carlton Cuse is producing the Lock and Key TV show. I hope that that's I think that that's okay to say. Well, I said it. <laughs> you said now. it, so it's out there. <laughs> it's already recorded. You know. <laughs> In the in the script, I was joking with him. I, at at one time, I you know made a mistake and and called it lost in key. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> and 
and there's a few other there are a few other uh, lost jokes in there for Carlton. In some ways, though, you know, I remember when the comic started and Lost was a big thing on TV, mm-hmm. and you know, I would talk with Gabriel Rodriguez about how, in some ways, Key House was the island. It was it was a setting that allowed us to tell any kind of story we wanted to tell. Right. Um, and that was and you know, in the same way, the island was a useful narrative tool because you could you could find something on it that would help you tell the stories you wanted to tell. Keyhouse was a little bit the same way. Um, so Carlton is working on it, but beyond and and you know I'm working on a, a fourth draft of a script now. Everyone seems to really like it, so we'll yeah. see what happens. It doesn't have a, a, a channel. Nobody's picked it up yet, right? Yeah, or not, you're not allowed not, to talk about that. Yeah, no, not we. You know, not yet. The uh, we have not um, we have not packaged it with a channel. I I there's there's been a reasonable amount of interest. Uh, IDW has a production arm. Mm-hmm. They've done Winona Earp for sci-fi. They're doing Dirk Gently for BBC America, mm-hmm. and um, and they they are very protective and want to, because we've had we've been disappointed in the past because Lock and Key came so close to getting on the air once, and we came kind of close with the possibility of a of a film franchise. So they're they're holding their cards close to the vest, mm-hmm. um, but um, you know hopefully we'll be we'll be uh, placing with the channel soon. Awesome. And the one shot in December, are we are we going back yeah, to familiar I've territory? Pages. Yeah, I've been seeing pages from Gabriel Rodriguez, and it's so beautiful. I just, nice. he just completely blows me out. Of, you know, every page just blows me out of the water. Um, this is a story set in Key House's past. Uh, at some point, probably we're probably still about a year away from it, but at some point there will be a collection of new lock and key stories nice. that will be set in a kind of golden age of Key House's past. And some of those stories have already been published. There was one called Open the Moon um, that appeared about five years ago. There was one called Grindhouse that appeared about three years ago. Those will both be in uh, the golden age. Uh, Small World will be in golden age. And, and uh, there are some other stories we have planned. So, But we're kind of working at a different pace than we did when we were writing the ongoing series, mm-hmm. um, you know, we sort of taken a more meandering route to this book. Yeah. That's good. Make it, make it worth our wait, Right. <laughs> Hopefully I definitely think, you know, I, I, I know that the first two stories were well liked. I definitely think, you know, that Gabe has pulled out all the stops as an artist for this issue, but also for the other two that were part of the, the part of the series. And, um, um, so hopefully everyone has a good time with it. And I, I always enjoy going back and revisiting, you know, uh, key house. It's, you know, it's my home away from home. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. No, I'm certainly very much looking forward to that. Um, oh, I, 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 I want to get back quickly to, you know, you said you know, you're a fan of Stephen King books, but is it hard to read a Stephen King book or an Owen King book and be objective about it? I mean, can you can you separate them as father and brother from them as authors? Or do you just say like, oh, I have to love this book because I'm supposed to? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's a tough. You're asking if I can be objective about my own family. And the right. answer is prob- probably not. Um, I have the reactions. You know, I, I can't help having a reaction to the things that I have. I read a short story by my brother called positive comments that hasn't been published yet. And I, 
I thought it was the best thing that I had read this year at wow. any length in any wow. form. Um, I just loved it so much, and I thought it was so funny and so generous. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would have felt. I can't, um, you know, uh, I don't know what my reactions would be if I wasn't Owen King's brother. Maybe I wouldn't <laughs> feel that way. Yeah. Um, but I am Owen King's brother, and so that was kind of the response I had. <laughs> <laughs> is there any? You know, the other thing is, the yeah, other we... thing is, is as far as my dad goes, you know. I have I have influences. I I learned a lot about writing short stories from Bernard Malmed and uh, a fantasy writer named Kelly Link. Kelly's terrific. Um, I've learned a lot from reading Mary McMurtry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I've learned so much from David Mitchell, who I I adore. I love the novels of David Mitchell, but it's kind of hard to compete with the the you know um, the sort of overpowering. Um, uh, light that my dad is sort of cast on on the landscape of my own imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first Stephen, the first full length adult novel I ever read was The Talisman when I was about thirteen years old. <laughs> Where do you and, go from there? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> nice. I, right, exactly. I've been a huge Stephen King fan ever since, and I've read almost everything. Although I'm not a I'm not a Stephen King cultist. You know, uh, there are books I haven't read, mm-hmm. and sometimes people will assume that I know everything and, and cheerfully spoil something from me, uh, for me. There was a, a major figure falls late in the dark tower series. Mm-hmm. And I had someone, I had someone blow it oh, no. about six months before I read the book. Yeah. And I, I could have just about throttled them. I also took a quiz once. One of these, like, uh, it was like an app. It was some like quiz app in the early days of, right. uh, right. uh phone app. Um, gaming, and uh, there was a trivia question about Stephen King, and I blew it. <laughs> I got it wrong. So, so you, um, yeah. Is there a family rivalry that, that exists between your brother and your father and yourself? Do you like? Do you get together on holidays and settle it, or <laughs> is there something that happens? <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think so, really. You know, if if whatever family differences there have probably largely been sublimated into arguments about movies. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, at the end of the year, the best holiday of the year isn't Christmas and it isn't Thanksgiving. It's listing day. Listing day <laughs> is on January 1st. Okay. And the whole family gets together. Although these days, a lot of times we do it by email, the whole family gets together and we read our top 10 lists to each other. Top 10 favorite books, top 10 favorite movies, top 10 best albums of the year. So it's of the previous year or is it of all time? Of the year. Okay. Of the year. So it'll be like, you know, January 1st, 2017, we're going to break down 2016 with our top 10 list. (laughs) Nice. And it's a great way to get recommendations. The book, I I always love seeing my brother's book list, Mm -hmm. my mom's book list, my dad's book list. You know, because I know I'm going to discover some stuff that I have to read. Wow. It's also a great way to provoke argument. <laughs> Guaranteed way to start, you know, start big vocal brawling matches. Right. Which we all love. That sounds like yeah. a fantastic family tradition. I might get on board. <laughs> it's great. January 1st is listing day. It's national listing day. I get started, I get, you know, I get officially labeled the holiday right this instant. Um, and then, and then the cool down, the cool down afterwards, you have the list as together as a family. And then after 
the listing is done, you go play Scrabble together. Oh, perfect. Who wins? It is a perfect day. Oh, usually my mom. Yeah. The funny thing is, the funny thing is, is when we do Trivial Pursuit, when we do Trivial Pursuit, it'll be like, you know, you'll play in teams. Yeah. But really, it's just my mom playing my dad. <laughs> it'll be like, there'll be teams around, but it'll be like when it's whatever team my mom is on, it will be her turn. And then she'll sit and she'll answer like 24 questions in a row and get most of the pieces. And then it will be my, you know, the turn for my dad and his team. And my dad grips his head like his head is about to explode. Scanners. And (laughs) his eyes bug out behind his glasses. And he groans at each, each question and puts his forehead down against the table and squeezes like he's squeezing an orange. And then the answer pops out. And he'll, he'll answer 20 questions himself in a row. And everyone just kind of sits there and drinks cocoa and watches the two of them go at it. There's usually only about three or four turns in the whole game. It's like my mom's team, my dad's team, my mom's team. If she doesn't win, he wins on his next turn. That's it. Whole game. That's a, to be a fly on the wall for those games. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you would you say that your family, like with your kids, is it similar? Are are you raising your kids similar to how you were raised? I mean, is it is it very much focused on books and literary conversations, and you know, this is the time to create, or or are you consciously trying to do it a little bit differently? The 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 well, I don't let any of my three children out of the wet and dripping basement until they've each written fifteen hundred words. In the <laughs> um, they are going to they are going to bring glory on this family or I am going to know the reason why. No, I tried to take a fairly light touch with the kids. You want to let them find their own enthusiasm and not feel like, you know, the only way to be a king is to be a novelist, to be a writer. Um, And they each have their own set of interests. Um, There is one boy who very much likes to write. Um, well, they all like to write, though. They all like to write. There's, there, I think there's one boy who's a little more interested in film. Mm-hmm. But even when it comes to film, I think he's sort of interested in writing for film mm-hmm. as much as, you know, as much as playing some other role. Um, the youngest boy has been taking lessons in coding um, for almost two years now and is uh, fascinated by the idea of, creating puzzle games yeah and um and i find that kind of puzzle games with you know sort of escape the room type narratives yeah and i think that's that's terrific and another you know another sort of form of they're all interested in different forms of storytelling Mm -hmm. but it's not clear to me that they will necessarily wind up doing the same kind of storytelling i did or yeah. Or my dad did. But then on the other hand, I never really wound up being, you know, I never really wound up being the kind of writer my dad is. We've written some stuff that's very similar. Yeah. But then there's the whole comic book thing, which is kind of, sure. um, you know, something I wound up doing that was that was in a fundamentally different form from, you know, my dad's usual approach. Yeah. Do you have a standard piece of dad wisdom that you tell your kids over and over? Um, my advice, uh, my advice, what do I have? What do I have for the kids? Um, not to put you on the spot. No, I'm really shining. I'm really shining here, aren't I? (laughs) 
Um, you can also play the character know, or pass. <laughs> well, well, it reminds me of like you know one question I get a lot is um, people will say, "What's one great piece of advice that helped you as a writer?" Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question is, I've had a lot of wonderful mentors, and I've been given a lot of really great advice, but none of it really meant anything. Mm-hmm. You know, most of what I learned about writing, I learned from writing every day and from reading a lot of great books. Um, I think especially reading writers I admired taught me about writing. And I guess that's a little bit about how I feel about parenting. I've tried to read something like 16 different parenting books, and it's the only literary form I found completely unsatisfying. I've never been able to make it through any of those parenting books. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that, that it's, it's words of wisdom that matter so much. Um, I think it's more the example you set. And I've, I've tried to model, um, uh, a little bit of a DIY thing, you know, where, um, you know, if you want to learn something, it's as simple as doing it for a half an hour every day, yeah. whether that's, you know, um, learning how to play a musical instrument or learning how to draw or learning how to code. Um, uh, so there's that. I, I, I tried to send a message that, you know, no one day of work matters that much. Yeah. Um, it's That's a the good whole suite, you know, it's, if, if you have a lousy day with your schoolwork, with something you're writing, with some project you're working on, that doesn't mean you're, that doesn't mean you're stupid and a failure in the same way that when you have an incredible day, when it all falls together, it doesn't mean you're a genius. It's, it's really the steady drip drip of accumulation, mm-hmm. um, that matters. Um, I try not to yell. Yeah, I don't think I don't think yelling is is um, aside from a toddler running for a road. I don't think that yelling is terribly helpful. Yeah. Um, the one you know we used to read together as a family, but of course my boys are all pretty big now. Mm-hmm. I've got a seventeen-year-old, a fifteen-year-old, and a thirteen-year-old. Yeah. So it's been a while since we all sat in the same room together and passed a book around or for. You know, I read to them. I think the very last book I read to them was True Grit by Charles Portis. Nice. And that, and that would have been three or four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to keep that going when they get older. Mine are still young, yeah. so they're still, you know, they hang on every word, especially when I'm reading. So it's nice. But I know those days will eventually end. When I go into a bookstore, if I see a really great children's picture book, I feel a pang. Mm-hmm. Because there was, for a long time, I lived in Boston, and I lived in walking distance of Brookline Booksmith, a great independent bookstore. And I swear for about four years, I bought every single picture book they had in their shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and many of the best ones I read hundreds of times for the kids. Yeah. Um, and they're all, now I, all my kids are too old for picture books. They've been too old for picture books for at least a decade. God, sad, um, and isn't I still it? kind of feel like <laughs> I still see something and I'll be like, oh, they would have loved that. Yeah. That would have been a winner. Yeah. Um, I know we're, we, we're, we're over time. I just want to ask one more question yeah. and we'll let you go. Sure. Um, sure. How much of what you write comes from your own inner fears? And, and what is it that scares you? Right. What is it that scares me, interferes? Um, well, you know, I would say I would say a lot of it probably comes from 
you know, wild, ludicrous anxieties that, you know, sort of, you know, appeared like bubbles in a carbonated drink and then popped, you know, some some wild notion. I mean, the most recent novel, The Fireman, which is about this plague of spontaneous combustion, um, one of its roots is that when I was 12 years old or 13 years old, I read about spontaneous combustion and I thought, oh, my God, that can happen. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and because I was twelve, I immediately accepted it as fact. And then for years, I thought, you know, what if I die that way? What if I explode into flames? And it was like, you know, looking back now, I see I was, you know, when you're in puberty, you really do feel like your own chemistry is coming to a boil, right. and you might erupt. Um, so it was kind of a metaphor for that. But I was really gripped by this idea that you could just, you know. Um, have a miserable day and be frustrated and angry and then suddenly discover you were smoking. Um, and, you know, eventually it found its way into a novel. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think you can only work with your own set of concerns. Um, I usually try to, when I'm working on a story and I come up with, you know, a, a weird notion, an interesting idea, um, I always ask myself, okay, you've got a fun idea, but what's it about? Is there anything here besides a weird idea? Right. Um, the first short story I wrote that really took off for me was about the friendship between a juvenile delinquent and an inflatable boy named Arthur Roth. Arthur suffers from a genetic disorder, which uh, causes him to be 12 ounces, mm. and he's filled with air. And if he sat in a sharpened pencil, he'd explode. Mm-hmm. And I, it started out as a joke, but gradually as I was writing it, I realized I was writing about a certain kind of friendship, um, the friendship that kids sometimes have with someone who is very frail and unwell and unlikely to live to adulthood. And so what started as something goofy wound up uh, as, as, um, as being a way to wrestle with a big idea, with an interesting idea for which I don't have any – you know, simple answers or, you know, I don't know, um, you know, how do you make that right when you were your friends with someone who's not going to survive to adulthood? Yeah. You know, what do you do with that? But I suggested some ideas and, and, you know, it was interesting to explore it. Yeah. Joe, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talking to you. Hey, it was really fun. It was great talking to you guys too. That's it for the great big beautiful podcast on Halloween. <laughs> okay, we're gonna. I'm not. Yeah. Just I love it. Put the microphone down. <laughs> Step away from the microphone, scary man. You know, I've always wanted to do like a themed. I know we're timely, but I've always wanted to do a Halloween themed episode because Halloween's my favorite. I love Halloween. Yep. We just, just did it. <laughs> we did it. It's bu- bucket list check. Jack. Okay, and here's something for you to do. I'm telling you right now, you got to do it in post-production. You're going to end the episode. It's got to be like some kind of like a cackling witch scream or something. We will. I'll do it. We will. But before we get to that, how can people get in touch with us, Justin? Yes, if you want to... Get in touch. If I guess if you have to, no, I'm just joke. If you want to get in touch with us, we are at the GBB Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. Just search GBB Podcast, Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. You'll find us in all of those places. And <laughs> I'm Justin at 140 Justin C on Twitter, Instagram, different 
places like that. And Jamie is... I'm at the Roarbots. T-H-E-R-O-A-R-B-O-T-S. The Roarbots. And you know what we haven't told people in a while? Our phone number? Call us. Yes. Yeah, the phone number. Leave a spooktacular message. (laughs) What kind of tacular message? A spooktacular message. Oh, spooktacular. Uh, 301-825-5653. Leave a message. And uh, if you leave a message, um, we might use it on a future episode. And if it's you, like doing like a spooky voice or, or cackling like a witch, we will absolutely use oh, it on a yeah. episode. You know, like not even in a question. No, not even. And, you know, just say whatever you want. If you just want to leave us a little message, whatever, or even if you want to do, you know how we have the liners at the start, I am so-and-so you're listening to. If you want to do something fun for that, we'd love to have it. We'd do it. Do it. Call us. Jamie won't answer, I promise. <laughs> All right, guys, we will see you next week. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.com.